Hello and welcome to the Lebanese Politics Podcast. I'm Benjamin Red, joined by Nizar Hassan. Uh, as always, Nizar, how's it going? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing really good. We've got a lot going on this week, uh, and we we had actually uh, put off recording until Sunday morning because we thought maybe, just maybe, there's going to be a cabinet. So far, there's not. Who knows? There there could be one though. Like later today or maybe tomorrow, there could be one. Uh, but because there isn't one. We, we've sort of got uh, less to talk about. <laughs> yeah. We, we still have a lot because a lot went on this week. Um, but, but we'll do like a special episode on the cabinet if it happens. Yeah, exactly. So we're still going to drop this at midnight tonight. But yeah, if something happens later today or tomorrow or early next week, then we will come to you with a special episode of the Lebanese Politics Podcast explaining all the cabinet formation, all, all the stuff. But first, the news this week. What everybody's talking about is Jamal Khashoggi. He disappeared inside the Saudi consulate on October 2nd uh, in Istanbul. And there have been a a number of explanations that have been forthcoming for his disappearance. I I think the latest one as of right now is that the Saudis have admitted that he was killed, but it seems as though maybe I don't even know what is their latest thing that they're that they're saying in a fist fight. Oh right, in a fist fight. Yeah, yeah, which sounds very reasonable. You have I a mean, fist is, fight I mean, in a concert and then you are cut into pieces. Immediately ridiculous, right? It, it it just beggars belief that this is what they have come up with. Obviously, this will be changing over the next few weeks. But this week we had something. Uh, the reason we're talking about it on the Lebanese Politics Podcast is that. This week, uh, we had Saad Hariri come out uh, in support of the Saudis. We had Abdul Latif Derian, the Grand Mufti, the, the, the highest Sunni in the country, come out in support of the Saudis. Uh, specifically, he even said you know, that it was uh, political blackmail. I think he was speaking on Monday. Political blackmail against the kingdom, said it defies the feeling of more than one billion Muslims, which is a pretty big statement to make. <laughs> Yeah, and out of, I mean, it doesn't belong in this conversation at all. I I mean, it doesn't make any sense to be talking about Muslim dignity at this point because it's an issue between, what, Saudi Arabia and Turkey. Right, as if the Turks aren't Muslims. Yeah. Yeah, sort of of ridiculous, but but also sort of, it it tells you a lot about the politics of Dar al-Fatwa. I think it uh, and also and I think the fact that when it's an issue only about Saudi Arabia and doesn't involve Iran in any way or Syria that Hariri and Dirian and these people can say anything they want because there are no repercussions if they support Saudi Arabia and this ridiculous stance right yeah. because there's no controversy around it inside Lebanon doesn't have any implications for uh, for their counterpart or for their allies or opponents in Lebanese politics Right, absolutely. Also, non-Muslim Simir Jaja came out and saying, oh, we need to wait for the results of the investigations uh, before we start uh, banding about uh, what might have happened. I think he, he said that on Tuesday. And we, we should note here that Jaja is heavily rumored to be a very close ally of Saudi. I, I mean, that, that that part actually isn't a rumor, right? But there, there are a lot of rumors that swirl around about uh, possible support that he gets from Saudi, including financial support. But anyway, these comments all came sort of like a wave of support from allies of Saudi throughout the region, right? So we had people like from Bahrain and the Emirates and everything also speaking up as part of it. It just seems sort of like a coordinated show of support for the Saudi regime. Also in the news this week, we have our third power barge is now like officially done 
I think on Thursday was the last day that it uh, it was supposed to be around. It was only supposed to be here for three months, and that ended on on Thursday. They kept it running for like another day, right? Because EDL had supplied them with like extra fuel. But I believe I I, I don't know this, but I believe it is still there. So it it's no longer supplying power to Kesselrain, but it is still physically there, and they're waiting until like the right weather conditions before it leaves. But also, like, maybe they're just waiting for cabinet formation because once there's a cabinet, then maybe they could extend the time that it's here. I'm sure that would be very popular in Kessler Wayne, which is now seeing something like 21, 22 hours of electricity per day instead of 12. It, it, this, we have this weird, like, it, all, everything's happening at the same time type thing, right? The cabinet formation, potential cabinet formation, and this power barge potentially being able to stay longer because, you know, as Jessica Obeyed from Chatham House said, you know, nothing is ever really a temporary solution in Lebanon. Mm. Something like this, which starts out as temporary, it ends up being... That's a good comment, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, and also this week, big news, uh, the Nasib border crossing between Syria and Jordan opened up. This is very, very important to uh, Lebanese exports. It, it, it's very important that it reopened, but also there's some question about how much like Lebanese truckers have to pay at the border, which I'm not quite sure on yet. But are the trucks already going to uh, Jordan? Supposedly, supposedly, yeah. But there's a question about whether, like, you have to pay more uh, if you're, like, transporting Lebanese goods than Syrian ones, yeah. apparently. This crossing is indeed very important. It was When it was closed in 2015, I remember this whole, pro- a lot of protests and uh, debates with the agriculture ministry and Lebanese farmers about the new ways they can export their produce- products to uh, the Gulf, which is the main importers of Lebanese agriculture. So this is why it's so extremely important. And right, because when you, it's you, closed, you have to export them through the sea, which is much more expensive. And it's much slower. And if exactly. you're shipping produce, like it goes bad and you can't airlift it because that's too expensive. It's just vegetables, you know. So, yeah, the, this Nasib is very, very important to the agriculture uh, sector specifically in Lebanon. Yeah. Uh, we also had uh, a bunch of clashes erupt in Miyoumiye, a uh, refugee camp. De- uh, right next to Ain al-Halwe is a second Palestinian refugee camp called Miyoumiye. And uh, usually we hear about clashes in Ain al-Halwe, right? But this time clashes happened in Miyoumiye. And it was between members of Ansar Allah, which we've spoken about on the podcast before, and Fatah. Yeah. Ansar Allah, uh, if you remember... Uh, they, they just had members who were being tried for uh, attempted assassination of a Palestinian security official. That that case was moved from the military tribunal to a civilian court, uh, which also had these weird political and sectarian connotations uh, attached. But it was these guys, uh, and they got into a fight with Fatah on Monday. Clashes broke out. We had something like 16 people wounded. Then there was ceasefire happened. And then Tuesday... Things started up again, and two people died. Uh, more were injured, and then and then another ceasefire happened on Tuesday, and that one held. But then other things happened. The army actually went into Miyawamie on Thursday, I believe, and they went in and they took over security, which is huge. The army does not go into Palestinian refugee camps. That that is a a big rule ever since the 1969 Cairo Agreement, right? Mm. Uh, and and it's that basically says Palestinians are in charge of their own security in the camps. The Lebanese state isn't supposed to interfere. They're not supposed to go in or anything. And so it was a really, really big deal that the army is now there. They've taken over security inside the camp. It's huge. Yeah, I wonder why that would be. Maybe we'll have another uh, episode actually about Palestinian camps and go into the security 
aspect as well, have someone who knows about it. We, we, we need to find somebody who really knows this subject, because I do not. Me neither. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then on Friday, a few FPM MPs uh, made a trip down to the town of Miwami. So the camp is actually in a town of the same name. And these, these Christian MPs went down and they talked to like the mayor and they talked to the priest in the town. And the, the townspeople don't really like that the camp is there. They do have legitimate grievances, right? The, the camp keeps expanding a bit onto land, you know, that's owned by um, uh, people in the town. And also when fighting breaks out, who wants fighting right next door, right? Your kids are playing, you know, in the street or something. And then uh, all of a sudden you hear guns going off in the distance. Nobody wants that. Right. Yeah. Uh, so there are legitimate grievances, uh, but there's also a sectarian subtext to all of this. Right. So you have this, these Christians sitting there and then you have a camp that is Palestinian and majority Muslim right next door. So the, you, you do have this sectarian angle. And so you have these three Christian MPs, one from Jazin, one from Beirut, one from Metin going down there and talking to Christian leaders in the town about this. It, it seems as though it, it's sort of exploiting this sectarian uh, subtext for political uh, purposes. But, but then on the other side of things as well, well, what are the Palestinians inside the camp supposed to do? You know, it, it, it's nobody is a winner here. And pitting the two sides against each other is kind of a bad idea. Yeah, especially that there's absolutely no mention of the fact that people inside the camp have to live in these conditions. But you know, this the clashes are happening between their houses. You know, there's always like the Lebanese that are being affected by the Palestinians. But inside the camps, the situation is horrible. It's never in the media. It's never the topic of discussion. It's always like who's being disturbed by Palestinians or how we can build a wall around Ain al-Halwi to make it like safer for the people outside. All of right. these issues, you know. Also, uh, really quickly want to note, Shakir Birjawi is free after turning himself in. Uh, if you don't remember, back in 2014, this guy Birjawi, he was sort of run out of Tariq Day here in Beirut. He's he's a leader of like this, like the Arab movement party or something. It's a small like pro-Assad Sunni party. And Tariq Day is heavily Sunni and heavily like pro-Mustabal. In 2014, there were, there were clashes, gun battles and everything. And he was basically run out of run out of town. He was tried in absentia at the military tribunal for the clashes, and and they handed handed down a sentence. But then they sort of they, they must have worked out a deal because Thursday he turned himself in. He paid a fine of uh, six million eight hundred thousand lira, about four thousand five hundred dollars, and it, and he had to give up his rifle, and then he was free to go. And so now he's free again. Wow. The, this is the way uh, Lebanese justice works, you know. Um, and speaking of paying fines, Ibrahim Alamin, the editor-in-chief of Al-Akhbar, uh, Lebanon's number one newspaper, might have paid his fine at the STL. It, you remember he was fined uh, because he, he didn't show up to court at all when, when he was charged with releasing the names of witnesses in the STL. And the STL now says that after an arrest warrant was issued for Amin, a representative of his went to the office of the Minister of Justice and paid 20,000 euros, paid the fine in full. Al-Akbar and Amin, they say this is a lie. You know, we we have never considered this court as legitimate or anything. Why would we pay this fine? There was also a fine levied against Al-Akbar, a 6,000 euro fine. They didn't pay that. And so uh, Ibrahim Al-Amin is like, well, why would I pay only one of the fines and not the other one? Which, I mean, sounds reasonable, 
Sort of, but like if there was an arrest warrant as well for him, then maybe you would pay the fine to avoid the arrest warrant, but not the other fine. To protect himself. I mean, it's different when it's an institution and when it's an individual with an arrest warrant. I mean, it's a completely different situation, I guess. Yeah, yeah. And it's more political, a political stance if you pay on behalf of the institution and it becomes official rather than just saving yourself from the situation. Although it would also be a really great way to just fuck with him to go and pay it on his behalf like (laughs) (laughs) i I know that this is like going down the conspiracy theory route which i don't really i don't think this is what happened but it would be kind of hilarious to do this just to (laughs) just to mess with everybody right that's a good idea for his next uh, editorial yeah yeah exactly Um, and also this week, we had Jeff Sessions, the, the attorney general of the United States, designating Hezbollah as a top transnational organized crime threat. So basically, it, it's, it's just marshalling all of the DOJ's resources together in one place to combat. And he named like five groups, right? Hezbollah, uh, MS-13, and then like three drug cartels. So out of those, Hezbollah seems a little bit out of place, but whatever. The the DOJ is basically going to try to coordinate its activities against Hezbollah a, l- a little bit more than they have been in the past. That That's what all of this means. It doesn't have anything to do with like new sanctions or anything like that. It's just Department of Justice resources. Um, and and speaking of Hezbollah, uh, we had Hassan Nasrallah giving a speech this week, right? Uh, yeah. Which is actually really kind of weird because if you were watching the Lebanese networks and watching the speech on the network, you it wasn't just him speaking. You had two thing, two events going on at the same time. You had Nasrallah on one side of the screen speaking, and then you had a commemoration for uh, Wissam al-Hassan on the other side. And that's that was a really weird picture to see, right? Yeah, totally. And uh, and like especially that to give some background that Wissam al-Hassan is um, used to be the ISF information branch uh, chief, and he was assassinated in 2012. And the side that is accused of his assassination is the Syrian regime through its allies in Lebanon. So I think that's what makes it a bit ironic. Right. He was no friend to Hezbollah. Uh, exactly. He was actually Hassan was uh, totally Hariri's guy. You know, he was a security guard in Hariri's office, first in Rafiq Hariri's office from 1992 to 1995. And then he was the head of Hariri's office uh, 1998 to 2000. So he remained in this security institutions for Hariri until his assassination. And when Hariri was assassinated, uh, reportedly, according to many reports, the, the UN was carrying out an investigation to see why Wissam Hassan was not with Hariri at the day of the assassination because he's always in his convoy. And apparently he had a university exam to study for. And there was this whole issue about the UN seeking to investigate further into this because he made apparently 24 calls during the same morning when Hariri was assassinated, but then dropping the investigation after Saad Hariri said, no, no, you're not going to investigate this guy. He's my guy. I'm keeping him. And Saad Hariri actually trusted him so much that he promoted him. And in 2006, under Ashraf Rifi, who was the head of the internal internal security forces, Wissam Hassan was appointed head of the information branch, which is the intelligence unit of the ISF now. And this was really important because the role was that Hassan had as the head of the information branch was was, was big. You know, he um, first of all, in relation to Hezbollah, as you mentioned, he was a main source of the telecommunications data that went to the STL that led to the indictment of Hezbollah members, you know, the phone calls, etc. Yeah, basically the cornerstone of the STL case against Hezbollah rests on this data that Wissam Hassan had a hand in providing, right? 
exactly. So that's why he was very politicized in the first place. And moreover, he was um, also responsible for catching a network of Israeli spies that had 100 people, including Faiz Karam. And Faiz Karam was a high-ranking FPM official. And there was this whole fuss in Lebanon about this guy, Karam, going out of jail after two years only, although his crime is pretty big, which was giving the Israelis information about Hezbollah and about FPM and all other Lebanese affairs. So everyone was like, oh, if you are that politically connected, it's so easy to escape such an important conviction. But maybe Wissam Hassan's biggest operation or biggest achievement inside the information branch was catching uh, Michel Samaha and foiling his plot to import explosives from Syria uh, in coordination allegedly with the Syrian security chief Ali Mamluk and more senior figures in the Syrian regime to carry out bombings in Lebanon in order to uh, incite sectarian strife. And this was a huge issue, right? Because Michel Samaha was caught in all kinds of evidence text and video and everyone was watching his videos if you remember yeah he was more or less like caught red-handed right exactly and there was this disturbing video of him eating this piece of fruit while talking about the the plans to bomb etc so anyway this was a very this was scandal rather than a political issue so everyone no one was really defending smeha but the importance of it is that a Lebanese security force arrested a senior political figure that is directly connected with the Syrian regime and this doesn't usually happen right yeah that's huge at the time we're the Syrian regime was facing the uprising, the Syrian revolution back, we're talking about 2011, 2012. Imagine how how significant that was because it was a huge section of, a huge portion of the Lebanese political sp- uh, spectrum siding against Bashar al-Assad and uh, supporting the Syrian revolution, including March 14 forces, which Wissam al-Hassan was part of in one way or another. He was backed by at least and this tells us another thing about the politics of the information branch that Wissam al-Hassan was heading, which is that it's kind of like the, it was the time when Hariri stepped up his game in the Lebanese system from like a politician and a part of his political and business elite to someone who has like serious security leverage, you know, because if you think about it, and this has been mentioned by many people, it's not an original idea, but the ISF information branch, it's like the counterpart of other intelligence branches, mainly the Lebanese army intelligence, which is traditionally held by a Christian uh, officer. And the general security, which also deals with intelligence, that is headed by a Shiite officer. So it's kind of the Sunni counterpart of these agencies. And in yeah, fact, and, like, and I, I've even heard, you know, like, like pro Mustafa al Sunnis describe it as like, oh, that's our branch. Exactly. And anything about this branch is always very politicized. It's always part of the March 14 victimization, like rhetoric, you know. Anyway, also Jaja uh, expressed, according to WikiLeaks ca- cables, Jaja expressed to Jeffrey Feldman, then U.S. ambassador to Lebanon, his concern that quote unquote Hariri's own guy uh, was being appointed head of the information branch. And that this was a sectarian move. This was a, an attempt to um, empower a Sunni intelligence force in Lebanon. So in general, this branch and Wissam al-Hassan as a security office officer was a very politicized figure. His actions were very politicized. So the assassination was not surprising. And there were also rumors about possible threats to him before the assassination happened. So it wasn't surprising. And everyone concluded or understood that it's probably the Syrian regime who assassinated him, right? Because it made sense, especially after the Samaha case, which was very bold, as we said. And it was the time when the government was actually a pro-Syrian government. We had the March 8th 
eight government that had Hezbollah, Amal, their small allies, FPM, and uh, Progressive Socialist Party. It was... Um, yeah, the Najib Ma'ati, uh, 2011 government. Yeah, Exactly. It was seen also as if like the pro-Syrian government is ruling over Lebanon and they allowed this assassination to happen. That's why in after his funeral uh, in downtown Beirut, because he was um, laid to rest next to Rafi Hariri, in March Square, there were sizable protests by Hariri supporters. And I remember this uh, this media guy from the Hariri circle, Nadim Aqtaish, who became famous after this. His very extreme pro-Saudi, pro-Hariri guy. Uh, he was calling, Ya Shababu, Ya Sabaya, Yalla, Yalla, Asaraya. You know, calling people to invade the Grand Sarai and overthrow the government, etc. So it was a very, very politicized context. And, and like, since his death as well, He's become like sort of a, a larger than life figure in in like March 14 politics, right? Yeah, uh, he, he's he's seen like up there, like like you mentioned, he's buried next to Rafiq Hariri, and and he's seen as sort of like one of these you know great martyrs of the March 14th movement. And so even if a politician today is say maybe not on good terms with Saad Hariri, then they would still they'll still venerate Rafiq Hariri. They'll still venerate Wissam Al Hassan. Right. Yeah, exactly. Like Ashraf Rifi, for instance. Yeah. He, he still is is very uh, effusive about Wissam al-Hassan. Yeah, especially that Wissam al-Hassan was bold in his like behaviors, actions against the Syrian regime. Um, and he was not like apologetic to Hezbollah, for example, which is Rifi's main political uh, point. You know, the, the thing that distinguishes Rifi from Hariri is Rifi's more extremist, maybe rhetoric uh, towards issues of, of Hezbollah or the Syrian regime or sectarian issues, etc. So it Precisely. makes sense. Yeah. Uh, also this week, we had parliament meeting. It, we, we sort of went over what was going to happen last week uh, when we had Timur Asari uh, on with us. What we expected happened. Everybody was re-elected to their posts in the secretariat and on committees. No changes there. W- one one small note, Palia Obian, MP for East Beirut, said uh, that the committee member votes weren't done by secret ballot as are required under parliament's bylaws. So there are still some questions like we talked about, about the mm. voting. Also, three new bills were introduced. Uh, one, uh, two of them had to do with curtailing MPs' lifetime salaries. If, you, if you're an MP in Lebanon, you get paid the same salary for the rest of your life basically. Uh, and both Palaya Ubian and Kataeb introduced separate bills to sort of curtail this in, in different ways. Also, uh, Jamila Sayed introduced a bill that would uh, make parliamentary sessions broadcast live on TV. Right now, this happens sometimes. And I'm not sure if this is like, in theory, this is a really good thing, right? Like things should be available to the public. But in practice, when things are broadcast on TV, the parliamentary sessions seem to go on for a long time because you have a bunch of parliamentarians standing up and, you know, sort of grandstanding, right? And so I don't know if, like, for getting things done, maybe that's not such a good thing, but I, I, don't, I don't know, I'm torn. But imagine, like, for, for research or for, like, journalists, etc., it's so important to have our own, like, C-SPAN or, you know, this, yeah. this, this TV that tells you, that broadcasts everything that doesn't take and it selects whatever it wants to to upload or to uh, to broadcast it's important well maybe maybe we need like sort of a c-span here that nobody watches yeah exactly uh, and and not have it be on mtv or or lbc or anything like that yeah <laughs> um i i want to correct something uh that that i have been getting consistently wrong as well and and that is in the constitution it says you know parliament in their fall session is supposed to do the budget and not anything else until they've done the budget but but it's not exactly unconstitutional for parliament to do other business before the budget 
Timur Azari, our, our friend who joined us last week, he, he actually wrote a piece this week where he spoke to Lara Karam Bustani, who is a constitutional expert. She knows her shit very good on, on the Constitution, on constitutional matters. And, and she sort of clarified that, no, if, if there is no budget, then that doesn't mean parliament has to stop their work. Because if that were the case, that would mean that the government would be able to basically stop the work of parliament at will which would violate a principle of like separation of powers and stuff, right? Mm. So if there is a budget, then yes, parliament has to do it before anything else in the fall session. But if there isn't a budget, then parliament can do other business. They don't have to be stuck, subordinate to the will of the cabinet or, or whether there is a cabinet or not, because they're still their own, par- you know, they're, they're still their own constitutional uh, institution. It's a really interesting interpretation, actually, because I didn't think about it earlier as a matter of like the government, the cabinet or the executive branch stopping the legislative branch from functioning. But it makes sense. Yeah, it makes it makes a lot of sense. So, yeah, sorry for getting that wrong, everybody. <laughs> also this week, speaking of our friend uh, Temur, he got an interview with Eli Fersley, who is the deputy speaker of parliament. And Fersley, you should all go and read this piece if you have not. It's, it's very short, but Fersley said so, some really weird things in it. He, he said like that MPs have a right to lie to their constituents about how they vote in parliament, which is nuts. Wow. Uh, yeah, I, I, he, he did support, Fersley did support like the idea of having a registry of votes, right? To know exactly how MPs voted. But then when uh, Temur asked him a little bit more about this, he seemed to sort of like wave away the details and not be that interested. Because like, how are you going to know how an MP voted? You you have to like have some system in place, yeah. right? The, the technical details matter for this, right? And Fersley they seem to just sort of dismiss those. And he also didn't seem to know that the finance committee was not yet studying the budget. He seemed to be under the misapprehension the budget was being looked at, which is, is false. And finally, today, we've got to talk about cabinet formation, even though it didn't happen yet. There's been so much stuff going on. As of Monday, assuming that there is no cabinet made tonight, by the time this drops on Monday, it will be exactly five months since her was designated on May 22nd, right? This is deadline time, right? After a few more days, if no cabinet is formed, that's going to be a really big problem uh, for for the Lebanese state and for like just faith in the Lebanese state. And so there's there's tons of momentum right now. Um, just the meetings between Hariri and Basile. They met three times this week, at least, right? Monday, Tuesday, and Friday, which is, is pretty unprecedented. And, and we're seeing just a whole lot of movement right now. It all seems to be thanks to France. There was a whole diplomatic push by France, uh, which culminated in the meeting between Macron and Aoun on the sidelines of the Francophonie summit in Armenia. And as soon as Aoun got back from that summit we started seeing all of this movement happening this week. So I guess, thank you, France. That's, uh... Well, the post-colonial uh, militant inside me does not endorse what you said, but yeah. I, I mean, it, it does go to show the uh, the extent of French power still in the country, I think. Yeah, that for uh, sure. If, if we're reading the tea leaves correctly, right? That, and so while we have a lot of movement towards a cabinet as well, obviously we don't have one yet. There were originally like three big issues, right? That were That was keeping up. Uh, cabinet formation, one of them being Christian representation, the other Druze, and then Sunni representation. The Druze thing is solved. Jumblat met Aoun, gave him a list and everything. Like, Jumblat has a list, Erslan has a list, Aoun's going to choose somebody who's basically mutually acceptable to everybody. Mm. That's the idea. But on the Christian representation front, everything has come down to the Ministry of Justice. 
and and the FBM has finally sort of wised up to this that that the justice minister is actually one of probably the the two or three most most powerful ministers in the country, right? You, mm. You've got the finance minister at number one, and then you've got like justice minister and interior minister, both with significant amounts of power, right? Mm-hmm. And so they've been sort of saying this just recently this week. They finally come out with this talking point of just like, well, if Berri gets the finance ministry and Hariri gets uh, the uh, the interior ministry, then we should get the justice ministry. You know, it's only fair. Uh, but I think this is uh, the FBM has been really sort of outplayed by Jaja on this. First, uh, Jaja, and I don't know if this was like Jaja's grand plan or if it just happened this way. But first, Jaja seemed to have got them to defend the idea of keeping the sovereign ministries, things you know, like the the defense ministry, which the defense minister isn't super powerful, right? The the army commander is super powerful, right? Uh, and and the foreign minister, who who is powerful in his own way, but not as powerful as like the justice minister. And so the, the FPM first off, the the Aonis first off defended the sovereign ministries, and then Jaja got them to defend the, taking the deputy premiership, which is has like no power, you know, almost no power. And so now basically the FPM and the the Aonis are left arguing that they have a right to everything under the sun, you know, the sovereign <laughs> ministries, the uh, the deputy premiership and the justice ministry, you know, which is it, sort of ridiculous at a certain point. And, and also this week, apparently Alan blinked on the issue of the justice ministry. An Nahar came out with a report citing sources that said that Alan was willing to give up the justice ministry if it helped cabinet formation. Now, that was reversed immediately the next day when Basile went to meet Hariri and said, no, 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 we will not give up the justice ministry. But there is this question now, you know, so who gets the justice ministry? How does this we're, we're at the end of the game here? Yeah. Somebody's going to get the justice ministry and whoever doesn't get the justice ministry maybe gets compensated in some other way with more, I don't know, service portfolios or something like that. We will see who wins in the end. Uh, but this is the final point. We're at the end of the game. Quick side note on this. I think this is really interesting because to me, at least, this shows that another one of the Aonis sort of like bullshit arguments hasn't passed the test. Uh, this argument that Aon and Basile are separate entities and, you know, one is the head of the party, the other is the head of the country, and they're pursuing their own separate things. Like, when it comes down to it, when the pressure is on, what happens? Basile speaks on behalf of Aon. He, he went to Hariri on Friday and said, no, the president is not going to give up his share. He's not going to give up the justice ministry as part of his share. So the, this whole idea which it goes completely against what they've been saying all along. They're like, oh, no, there's this separation. Mm. I think that the source is close to Aoun saying he's he's giving up the justice ministry. It's quite significant because if it's true, then Aoun is sending some like, uh, you know, th- there's some politics involved between Aoun and Basil, I feel, that it's not like just one team, one solid team. Right, you think that Aoun is playing with Basile here. To a certain extent, like reducing his, maybe there's a coordinated balance between them, but it seems to me that Aoun is always like trying to be more lenient and then Basile strikes harder. Um, and But in, in the in the process, Basile has been put in a couple of embarrassing situations. And that's what I mean, you know, when on many issues, when Basile looks like he is the fanatic hardliner, I don't think it's a very good um, it's very good for his image as a as a leader of the major leader of, a, of a, the biggest political party in terms of representation. I don't know. Being a fanatic hardliner really is popular. That's true. That's true. 
I don't know. You, you could be right. I don't know. This, this is one of those like internal politics things that we can just sort of like look at from the outside and guess, but we nobody really knows unless you're inside the Aoni inner circle, right? Yeah, exactly. The other long simmering issue that has not yet been resolved is the uh, issue of Sunni representation, right? And so you've got 17 of the 27 MPs, Sunni MPs in parliament, are with the uh, Mustaqbal bloc, are with Saturi, but 10 of them are not which is a, a, a really large number. And and a good number of these 10, like six or seven of them, have come out and said, we want a minister of our own, right? And, and, and they seem to have like a pretty good claim to that since they have such large numbers in parliament. And this point is somewhat undercut by sort of the traditional Sunni stance that gives the prime minister, the Sunni prime minister, you know, carte blanche on things that uh, the, the traditional Sunni position protects the prerogatives of the prime minister to act freely, right? So a bunch of Sunni MPs coming out and coming going against that is, is sort of historically kind of weird, like from a sectarian perspective, it's kind of weird, but they do have this point, right, because of their numbers. I, I think that this is actually sort of an easy, easy-ish thing to solve. Uh, once the issue of the justice ministry is solved, this will also fall into place. It seems to me, from my reading of this, that like Mikati is sort of a, a good, he's, he's well positioned to be sort of in the middle and have one of his guys come in and be the minister here. He wasn't a part of these six or seven ministers, uh, Sunni ministers who said, we want uh, our own guy. He also is not obviously a part of the future movement. Um, so he's sort of like down the middle. He would be acceptable to both sides. And I think he would be acceptable to Damascus as well. The only problem with doing this, though, is that it seems as though the FPM would have to compromise because right now there is a Sunni minister who is not Hariri. Tara al-Khatib, right? Mm. Uh, he is an FPMer, and this time around, it seems as though the 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 non-Hariri uh, Sunni MPs are saying that's not good enough. We want our own guy in, and so in order to solve this, and in order to solve the justice ministry thing, the FPM would have to give up both. <laughs> would have to just surrender on both, and I don't. I I think that would be a hard thing for them to do. But who knows? Uh, there's there's a lot of different ways this could play out, and there are a lot of different things that people can be given if if they don't get what they want. There are a lot of other ways to compensate them, right? Both inside the government or outside. Appointments of... and contracts and all of these things that play into Exactly. Them. So uh, hopefully the next couple of days might tell us something about uh, how the new cabinet will look like, or maybe we'll have a new cabinet soon. And if we do, we are definitely going to come back with another podcast. Uh, it, it, I mean, if it happens early in the week, right? Yeah. <laughs> if it's late in the week, then we'll see you next Monday. Otherwise, we may see you a few days early uh, this week. But until then, I'm Benjamin Red. I'm Nizar Hassan. And this has been the Lebanese Politics Podcast. The Lebanese Politics Podcast is brought to you by myself, Nizar Hassan, Benjamin Red, produced behind the scenes by Susan Wilson, and the music is by Omar Elfil.